You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 107 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me is ever is the fantastic Neil Hughes. Welcome back, Neil. Hey, when did you uh, replace the Micro Machines guy? Did I speak too fast? <laughs> it was fast. Would you like me to slow that down for you? It was, I can... it was talented. I liked it. I can, I can, you know, in my my second employment as a Department of Motor Vehicles person, I can speak quite slowly if you <laughs> like, if that helps. But I, I want to get going. How have you been, by the way? Because you were on vacation for a little bit there. Yeah, yeah, did uh, a week in uh, Lake Tahoe. It was nice. It was it was fun. Gorgeous out there. Welcome back. Thank you. I want to start right off by talking about the iPhone. 10, the iPhone 8, the iPhone anniversary edition, whatever we're calling this thing. Um, iPhone X. Th- th- there's going to obviously be a new iPhone. And this iPhone, there you like iPhone There will be three X. of them. All right. Well, and in quantity. They're going to make more than just three, right? Well, <laughs> I would hope so. I'm not going to have to fight people for this, am I? No. No, okay. So, there... <sighs> I got asked yes, yesterday and the day before about wireless charging, and, and not specifically about iPhone, but, but you know, would I like to buy wireless charging products? And, and someone was showing me a speaker dock that had wireless charging built into it, and so you just put it on there, and it paired and charged. And, and I said in response that I wasn't interested because not enough phones that I care about have wireless charging in them currently. Mm-hmm. This is something that... that Phone manufacturers have experimented with over time. The old uh, Palm phones, right? The uh, the Palm Pre and the Pre Three and the the Veer had wireless charging in them. The uh, the some of the Nokia Windows phones had wireless charging in them and would work on top of a JBL speaker dock to charge. The Apple Watch and iPad Pro have wireless charging. So they do. Um, the although the iPad Pro wireless charging is using what the smart connector. Yeah, you have to you have to buy a hundred dollar dock to do it. But well, and it's it's even though it is wireless in terms of being a friction, there's there's nothing to actually plug in. You do have visible contacts as opposed to the Apple Watch where it's magnetic induction, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's more like MagSafe, I guess. But I guess kind of the Apple Watch is the same thing too. The magnetic induction kind of well, but it's induction coils as opposed to things actually touching metal contacts. Right. Yes. So I I would say in the scheme of things that I feel like the Apple watch is more of a true wireless charging system than say the iPad pro. I would say yes, but I would say that both are better than plugging in a lightning cable. All right. I'll, I'll take that answer. So, but, but at any rate, I was saying, you know, there, there just aren't a groundswell of phones out there that have wireless charging in them and have the same standard of wireless charging in them because there are a couple of competing standards right. uh, to make it make sense to, to buy this product. Um, I mean, so you were talking about the iPhone X, iPhone eight, whatever. Well, I'm um, getting there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing when it comes to wireless charging is, uh, you know, I, I think it was, uh, Phil Schiller said a few years ago, somebody asked him after one of the Apple events, why they haven't included wireless charging on the iPhone to date. And, um, he was saying that it doesn't really save you any time there's no advantage to it because you still have to plug something into the wall and then it has to be laying and taking up even more space on your desk because the phone has to lay flat on it um i mean and i i understand that i i can see that those things are true Uh, one of the other problems has been that for a long time they charged slower they were because you're doing magnetic induction and and through coils that have to line up that you don't get the same amperage per hour out of them that you do from a wire and let's be clear, you can get wireless charging solutions with an iPhone right now. They have adapters that plug in and basically just run a, a, a thin uh, cable uh, up the back, or a, a, you know, a ribbon cable essentially up the back of the phone so it's f- essentially flat. Um, and you can lay it on a charging pad and it plugs into the lightning port and it works. Um, but, you know, that's that's a workaround. But you could do it if you were well, really and when it. you do that, you've given up the ability to use your lightning port for anything else. Well, what else do you use it for? What else do you use it for? My On my iPhone, nothing. <laughs> it's just used for charging. Right. I, I use it for data communications because I am still doing the very old trick of using iTunes for file sharing. Oh, no, I haven't. No, I don't do that. <laughs> I do not do that. 
I know. It's no, funny, but, actually, but, my, no, my, uh, but if, if I had one of those cases, one of those, those wireless charging solutions for an iPhone today, then I wouldn't be able to use my FLIR 1 infrared camera for that matter. My parents bought a new car recently, and they called me because it has a wireless charging pad on it. And they're like, how do we use this with our iPhone? And I was like, well, you can't. But then I was like, well, I guess I could look in and get in the adapter. And so I Googled it. I think it's like a Toyota Avalon or something. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out that the iPhone 7 and 7 Plus, which aren't even the biggest phones on the market, by the way, in terms of size, are too big to fit on the wireless charging pad anyhow. So... (laughs) Like wh- well, so so to be fair, one of the things that people do when they make wireless charging systems is, as I say, there are coils, mm-hmm. and these coils are are what transfer the energy, they're through induction. Right. And to be efficient at them, you have to have the coils in the charging pad and the receiving part on the phone line up. If they're not aligned, then you aren't really charging well. And so what people have done in the past is put magnets in the charging pad and in the case so that mm-hmm. the magnets help you reach that alignment when you put it on the charging pad. So now you've got to have magnets and the coils and the cable to get it into the phone, integrated into a case to make that charging thing work. So they could work on the the Avalon if it's got magnets in it. Well, it, does, it doesn't physically fit in the space, though, is what I'm saying, oh. where it charges. Oh, that's bad. Like, that's why I'm wondering, like, what phone does this work with? Because, like, pretty much every phone sold these days is, like, 4.7 and up. Right? Yeah, so I was was just like, hmm, I wonder. But yeah, I mean, this is one of those things. It's like the technology has always been kind of on the fringes. And so what we're getting at here is that next year's iPhone or this year's iPhone, the the flagship model um, and the, the 7S models as well are rumored to all include some form of wireless charging. Now, the question becomes... Is it the wireless charging that we're talking about as it's been? Uh, has Apple developed a new standard? Or are we talking about completely wireless charging like the kind where if it's within a few feet of a transmitter, uh, it'll charge your phone and potentially give you cancer? Ah, the Nikola Tesla version. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I say that because Nikola Tesla in the early part of last century, you know, 19, 1910s to 1930s, had the idea at Wardenclyffe, New Jersey, where he was going to broadcast power around the world. Which was remarkably ahead of its time, especially when you think about Wi-Fi and cellular and all that that we have now. Yes. But uh, the, the so, so as we said, there are a couple of different standards, right? There's the the standard that Duracell and those guys backed. There's the, the Qi standard, which is spelled QI, which is mm-hmm. the other standard. Um, IKEA has been implementing one. I can't remember which standard they sided with. Um, so that when you go and buy Ikea furniture, you can have wireless charging built into your, your tables and bedside tables and things like that. Um, so this is an idea that's been coming, but we've seen this ever since 2007. I remember the first uh, Energizer products and Duracell branded products shipped uh, power mat kind of things. And what, what we learned at the time was that no one wants to buy the special magic case that you have to use with this and have this bulky case on your phone to be able to do wireless charging. It's just not attractive and no one's interested. But so it has to be built into the phone for there to be a groundswell of support. Once this is built into a phone or an iPhone for that matter, then people will buy into it. But again, what kind of wireless charging are we talking about? Because don't forget that that company Energis has repeatedly suggested that they have some form of a partnership going on secretly with Apple. And they are the true wireless charging company that that they're, they're the Nikola Tesla type. Yes. Yeah. So do you, I mean, do we think that Apple would pursue that technology? Is it ready for prime time? Uh, it, it will be if they ship it. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you hope so. Yeah. Um, it, it, there are a lot of questions to answer, right? You have to be able to supply enough power in an, in an efficient manner so that you can charge within the same amount of time or nearly the same amount of time as your wired connection, right? Mm-hmm. It has to be able to deliver at least one amp because that's what Apple ships as the the phone charger, even though it can charge faster with the two-amp supply or whatever. So you you have to do at least the one-amp supply over wireless. And it's kind of tough to do that. I I think it's possible. I think I've seen documents suggesting that it's possible. But are they they ready? That's a tough question. What I would like to see is... Has anyone implemented the Energist stuff? Has that been chipping in anything? No, and it's not really being used in any real kind of way. But their CEO has made a bunch of comments. He was talking at CES this year saying, I can't tell you who it is, but uh, there's going to be a company coming this year. You know, 
and they're really implying that they're working with Apple, which if a company's doing that, you know, I feel like they're just kind of blowing smoke up your, you know, where, but, um, well, it's also a good way to get stopped working with Apple, right? Oh, yeah, that's true too. <laughs> how, how quickly do you want to be out on your butt, right? Because you spoke. <laughs> I don't think, but the, the, one thing that I think is interesting is obviously you need to recharge your phone at some point, but I don't think that wireless power technology necessarily needs to, uh, recharge fully. What if it provided a trickle charge that slowed the consumption of power on your phone? So your use case is this is embedded in your desk and during the day when you have your phone on your desk, it is trickle charging so that you still maintain a charge, but it's not actively pushing like a full recharge. Right. Like uh, maybe maybe within you know a foot or two of the charger, you get a full recharge. It's got enough juice. But let's say within your house, you know, you've got like, you know, 100 square feet or something with within range of the charger where it doesn't necessarily recharge your phone, but uh, it sends out enough, you know, a small amount of power so that it's not draining quite as quickly. I think that there would be a lot of uh, uh, use cases for that sort of thing, too. So there are a lot of questions about how or why that would work, right? You know, if you have your iPads and your iPhones and you've got two or three iPhones in a family and you're trying to all do that, it, it drops off pretty quickly because, right. you know, you, you have to have enough power behind supplying it for that to work and be able to step up when there are more devices kind of thing. Just as when you plug into a wall charger, the, the wall charger has to be rated for four amps if you want to charge two devices at two amps kind of thing. Um, and, and how would it identify which one of those it's charging? And on top of that, battery management inside the phone is critical, as we learned from Samsung over uh, last fall. Right. You you can't overcharge a device. You can't charge too quickly. You have to manage the capacity of what you're putting into the battery and and monitor its heat as well. There's a lot going on, and I'm it's 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 a tough problem to solve. It seems. Yeah, I, I wonder about that. Just as we look toward this, you know, truly wireless charging future that I think inevitably is going to come, if, even if it's not in the next iPhone, it's still an interesting thing to think about because. Uh, you know, like the security of it is a great example. Um, if we all have wireless charging of our devices in our homes and it's good enough that you basically never have to plug in your laptop or your phone when you're at home is just getting juice wherever you are, which is, you know, theoretically possible. Um, how do you prevent, say, your neighbors from leeching off of your electricity? Like, do you uh, have to have electricity? Yeah. I mean, like, it's a little different now because you lock your doors and they can't access your plugs. But, you know, once it becomes wireless, it's basically going to be like, you know, sharing your Wi-Fi password to share your electricity password. Uh, imagine being able to go into businesses like Best Buy is like, oh, hey, we've got wireless power in here. Come on in and recharge your phone and shop our store. You know, it basically becomes what Wi-Fi is now. Well, maybe, although because, hmm, you know, it does. It does kind of become analogous to Wi-Fi and and guest Wi-Fi. I was thinking about it as if it were more like a utility because you'd set electricity. And because it's a utility, I was thinking about it like satellite TV, where, yes, it's something being broadcast through the airwaves. Mm -hmm. But, no, you can't just put up a dish and start receiving it because, well, they catch you. Well, they they have to. That's what I'm saying here, though. There has to be some way to secure it so that you're not just leeching off of like there has to be an authentication process. You want want like an NFC wireless pairing process to say that this device is authenticated to charge from this charger. Yeah, a password or something that needs to be entered to authorize. And so when you're asking how does it know which device is charging, I think that's how it works. Right. Okay. Well, you know, that's that's interesting. I wonder if that's going to be how it's implemented or if that's something that's even in consideration thus far. I mean, I, I would think it has to be. If, 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 if Apple were to even do some form of uh, short-range wireless charging um, with this year's iPhone, I feel like you know they would have to add like a menu option, like Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and then power, like a wireless new subsection and settings to control and, and manage that kind of stuff. It feels like that's the logical progression of it. Now, to be clear... I don't think that this is going to happen in this year's phone. I don't think the technology is there. And I don't think that Apple is going to do something like that on such a large scale um, with their best-selling flagship product. I think that that is setting yourself up for a major potential disaster if it doesn't work, especially as we saw with Samsung trying to cram too big of a battery into the well, Note 7. So so wait, there's there's two levels of it doesn't work. There's the doesn't work where it explodes and burns down your home or car. <laughs> yes, but there's also the level of doesn't work where it just doesn't work very well. Well, right? e- it's either not, of those it's not unsafe. Is a it's just 
doesn't function to people's expectations. And that's one of the issues. So we were talking about this device in the past as having a glass back, right? Or being totally made of glass. Right. Glass is not a fantastic conductor of heat. Right. Right. And so now you've got a battery inside and batteries heat up when they're charging, but no good way for that to vent or escape or or, uh, use the aluminum case as a heat sink. And so now you have to figure out how you're going to manage that extra heat and dissipate it and and uh, you know especially since since the act of charging and if you're charging all the time wirelessly as you propose it becomes an issue. Even but yeah even if you're just doing a standard you know contact pad type charging that generates heat and so uh, we had a report that came out this week from Ming Chi Kuo uh, uh, our listeners' favorite analyst but a guy who gets stuff right most of the time. Um, and he was saying that uh, a, a combination of factors with this year's iPhone, wireless charging, the switch to a glass casing instead of metal, and uh, uh, the addition of a new particularly heat-sensitive 3D touch sensor for the OLED screen, uh, all made it so that Apple is now going to have to include a thin graphite sheet uh, as part of the laminate for the display in order to dissipate some of the heat. Um, so that the device does not overheat and not work. Um, but it sounds like, at least from the supply chain perspective, Apple has worked out this issue. So this is not something you should be concerned about. Uh, just kind of an interesting inside baseball kind of tidbit about the upcoming iPhone that uh, Apple has addressed this problem. Uh, they figured it out in their testing, and there is not going to be a heat issue, supposedly, with the with the high-end iPhone. So that would be things no one needs to know, but we still find interesting. Well, you know, and as... The, at, the thing when when you're dealing with Apple rumors is you'll hear a report from here or there or whatever, but the more that these supply chain things all start to come together, because you got to remember, Apple makes the phone, but everybody else makes the parts. And so Apple has to work with, you know, countless suppliers to make the display, the 3D touch sensor, the touch ID home button, the speaker, earpiece, camera, flash, uh, memory, you name it. It's all manufactured by different companies that all need to come together and work together in some way. So as this information continues to come out, it starts to paint a clearer picture. So wireless charging was one of those things where six months ago, we are like, we don't really know if this is going to happen with the next iPhone. And now it's sounding more and more like it's a sure thing, like it's a lock. Um, so as we get closer to this September and the announcement of new iPhones, um, we're starting to get a clearer picture as it comes together. Now, of course, all of this could change, but uh, what we're seeing right now is there are going to be three new iPhones this fall. Uh, there's going to be a regular uh, iPhone 7S and 7S Plus, much like the last three years we've had, um, with aluminum backs um, and LCD screens. And then there's going to be a new high-end iPhone 8 or iPhone X as in the 10th anniversary, as some have taken to calling it. Um, and that phone is going to be a completely new design that we've been talking about with OLED screen, glass back, all that kind of stuff. And the latest rumor is that all three phones are going to have wireless charging in them. Whoa. But the high-end phone, the iPhone X, has all this new technology, including the Touch ID uh, embedded in the screen, potentially ditching the home button entirely, maybe even ditching the lightning plug if they're just going all wireless on it. Uh, Edge-to-edge, curved OLED screen, um, completely new design, and the rumors is going to start at over $1,000. I was getting to that. And that's interesting because, so what happens is, you know, phones are purchased in many different ways, Right. In, in America, we used to do subsidized model, and now we sort of do that, except that instead of being on subsidy per se, we are on monthly installment payment plans. Yeah, your, your monthly bill is lower, but you tack onto that the payment. Divided up over the amount of time. And you could pay it off early, or you could just pay it off over that whole time. Right. And most of the loans are interest-free, so in most people's cases, it's best to just pay it off over two years, because why pay it off up front? Right, but the nice thing is that once you're done paying it off, your phone bill then goes down accordingly, which in the in the past, in the past under America's not. subsidized plans, it never did. Yeah, you kept the same paying the same bill. It was like, why? And well, it, it it prompted you to go buy another device because why would you stick with one and pay more when you could be paying for the new device? Right. Um, but we don't do that anymore in America. In other countries around the world, they're not accustomed to those kind of contracts, and instead they just buy the phone outright at the beginning. And the outright cost of the phone um, starts at for a uh, uh, iPhone 7, $650. Uh, but it goes as high as $979 for a 
I thought it was 969 for a 256 gig 7 plus. Uh, 69 or 79, whatever it is. Nine, uh, 969. 969 for a 256 gig iPhone 7 plus, yes. So stretching that to 1,000 is not a high stretch, right? It's it's noticeable because 1,000 is a big number, but it's not a, a sweeping change. Is yeah, and, and the expectation is that certain components like the new 3D touch sensor are going to cost considerably more than the ones that were in the previous phones because the switch to OLED. The OLED screen is going to cost more. Obviously, embedding components in the screen is going to cost more. So I think that there are ways that uh, Apple could kind of, you know, uh, justify the cost beyond the um, uh, beyond the new design. Like for example, memory is one of those things where Apple charges a hundred dollars more for doubling your memory every time, but it doesn't really cost them that much. It's just a way for them to, you know. Well, the the cost of RAM from Apple has been a discussion going back to the Apple II days. Well, and the the reason why Apple prices RAM the way they do is because RAM is produced as we know as everything else, in, uh, in in the Far East. But the RAM factories and also the storage companies, for that matter, tend to be subject to supply and demand changes where weather impacts them. When there's right. a giant storm, they're unable to produce. Right. And so the cost of RAM goes up. And so Apple prices it in such a way that where they when, when the cost of RAM is low, great, they make money. But when the cost of RAM is high, they aren't now losing money and don't have to change the price of the product accordingly to just to keep the same profit margins. Yeah, and and they are now they, charging. They absorb those changes, right? Because of the dual camera system on the iPhone Seven Plus, they're now charging one hundred and twenty dollars difference. Um, if you go with the larger screen than the previous one hundred dollars difference, so you know they have creative accounting ways of of justifying what they charge. And so you see, the average selling price of an iPhone is now you know almost seven hundred dollars, the highest it's ever been. So to get to that thousand dollars is not really that much of a stretch. And an easy way for Apple to do that is they could just start off with 256 gigs of Ram or memory or uh, Ram would be excessive, but memory or uh, 512, even if they did a 512 for the, for the high end model um, making it, you know, the largest capacity ever. And that would be one way for them to keep the margins up while to the consumer making it appear like, you know, it's a great deal. And and this is the thing, right? We begin to use these things not just as phones, but it's possible to use them as almost primary computing devices. Yeah. So spending that much for a full-fledged, you know, communicator and computing device is not necessarily out of bounds. I don't think it's that crazy. You know, um, I was having a discussion with somebody yesterday um, um, who has a, a ceramic Apple Watch. Um, and he was saying that he kept it, uh, because he likes it and he likes the way it looks and all that. And that thing costs like a thousand bucks, I think, or whatever. Um, and I was thinking about it and I was saying, you know, if they made an Apple watch that had an LTE radio in it, um, and more than eight gigs of capacity, I would gladly pay over a thousand dollars for that device. You'd like your Apple watch. Well, I, I would like to leave my phone at home too. Just, there is that. It, it would be nice to go out for a night or whatever, go for a run and not have to, you know, transfer stuff over or be able to change my music on the fly without having to have it saved locally on the device. Um, and, you know, there were some new Android Wear 2 devices now this week that have LT radios in them and the battery life is hit or miss, basically. But I, I think that, you know, that's an inevitable uh, product that's going to be coming where we'll get LTE in the watch. And what's the value proposition of that to you, right? Most people probably don't want to pay $1,000 plus for an Apple watch because to them, uh, it doesn't offer that much value. But for me, if it's going to replace my phone and allow me to just leave my phone at home and I can still text if I want, I can still call if I want, I can still listen to my music, I can still do all the stuff that I like to do with my phone. Um, and it's in a very small wearable package that you know lasts a full day. I think that's great. I think that would be uh, worth it to me. But as you say, you know, these are our, our, these are our personal computers. They're, they're more personal now than they've ever been. Uh, what's that worth to you? So true. It's, it's, it, it really is. And you know, I think about it, right. The watch can do a, a lot of things. I haven't been wearing the Apple watch. And in fact, I, I got a message from a fellow who asked me if I still had one for sale because <laughs> I was, I was thinking about moving one of the Apple watches out of here. And, uh, it occurs to me that that with a little bit more work, you know, another generation of Apple Watch, it's probably becomes the device that our phones were seven years ago. For some people, yeah, I don't, I don't think that for a lot of people, they're never gonna give up the screen because you know, they like to watch movies and and that's oh, no, no, it's it's a totally different use. But if right. you think about 
when you bought the uh, the iPhone seven or eight years ago, right? You, yes, it had a big screen on it, but the things that you were using it for at that time were largely stuff like light email, some messaging, and uh, maybe some navigation with maps. Right. Plus or minus a few other features. And so to to say that that's now the watch is not out of bounds. Right. No, I agree. I, and I think that as the platform grows and becomes more independent from the iPhone in much the same way that the iPad and even the iPhone had to get independent from iTunes and plugging into your computer, even though you still apparently do that. Um, hey. I think that I think that that is going to be really when the the watch can stand on its own legs is really when it's going to be a pretty exciting uh, device that's more than just a, a something to pair to your phone. You know, as it is right now, I think the watch is about seventy five percent functional without a phone. Uh, but it'll be nice when we get to that ninety nine to one hundred percent. Yeah, and Mikey wrote about a patent this week about the Apple Watch and the the notion that future Apple Watch owners might be able to just exchange data with a handshake or a fist bump. Yeah, I mean, you know, little gimmicks like that I think are are interesting um, and they're kind well, of fun. Pe- people f- appreciate the novelty and stuff like that. What's interesting is that that used to be an iPhone application years and years ago. Uh, yeah. 2009, 2010, there was an application named Bump, and it existed so that when you were near someone, you could knock your phones together briefly, and it would identify that that they had knocked together and that it was ready to send in a contact record. And while so that was change business cards or whatever, while that was pretty novel and frankly stupid, let's not forget hey. that. Well, let's not forget that that was in the early days of the App Store, and that was the kind of stuff that wowed people and sold iPhones. Apple featured it in a commercial. That was a feature that people were really excited about, even though it was kind of gimmicky and stupid. Um, th- those are the kind of things that that can make or break platforms, those kind of like cultural moments where people are like, oh, wow, I can do that. And it kind of opens their eyes up in a way to seeing technology in a way that maybe they didn't see it before. Well, so the problem with that is that it was very intentional. You had to unlock your phone, yeah, it was dumb. open the application and be ready to bump, and the other person also had to be a user of the application. When you change that and integrate it into an Apple Watch so that it's running at an OS level, it's always ready to go, you've just given it your contact record as the one you want to exchange when you shake hands. Now when you meet people and they shake hands as well, they'll have done that setup and it will just happen. That contact exchange will just be there. Now think of it, you know, most people have business cards. And they exchange them when they do uh, meetings face-to-face. But for the, the most part, you can buy 500 business cards and make it through a year. But when you go to uh, CES or one of these, these con- conventions, right, you can blow through a 500 bag of cards in, in two days. It's very easy to run out of, of exchanging contact information. And you don't have any context for where you met that person, under what circumstances, or, or anything else. Now, when it's built into the watch, it knows your location, right? And you can give it some context. So this becomes a more interesting and maybe more, more useful way of handling contact records. And people have tried solving that contact exchange thing for a long time. There are all kinds of apps right it now. It needs to be built in at the operating system level. It though, for has it to, to be. Yeah. It really has to. I don't think you know, this, this is, is something kind of that, that Apple would necessarily pursue, though. I, maybe well, it's it's a minor feature. They'd spend two days implementing and walk away. Right. It's it's not a tentpole feature that is the core of why you own this thing, but it's one of those things where when you own this thing and it's useful for other reasons, this one supports that. But you raise a good point about how location awareness and frictionless implementation of these sorts of services are a key to their adoption. You know, the fact that Apple Pay automatically pops up when you hold your phone or your watch near an NFC terminal, you know, and then all you got to do is just hold your th- your finger over the scanner to pay for your item. I mean, that that is the reason that Apple Pay adoption is doing so well and is beating every other uh, contactless payment method is because it is integrated in a way that makes it as easy as possible and as simple as possible. Yeah, and it has to be. You know, this is this is a problem that people have been trying to solve since the days of Palm OS, where you, people used to use infrared from their Palm devices to exchange cards. And when you can say, you know, have we had a previous greeting before? Where was the location we met previously? Um, you know, is this a personal exchange or a work exchange? Is this a name-only kind of exchange? How does this person fit within my social network? How many degrees away are they from me kind of thing? Uh, really can inform and and be a lot more useful than that 
two inch by three inch paper card. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the paper card, you lose it. It's a waste. You know, if you get it on your phone, you can search it. It's easy to find, you know, those are the kind of things that as time goes on, you know, eventually digital is going to replace because it's more practical and just has more value. I can't wait for that to happen. I've been trying for so long. LinkedIn used to have a fantastic application for sucking in business cards and and, and putting them in your phone contact record, and it was it was so good. I think Evernote does something like that too. Yeah, I don't want to use theirs. <laughs> well, they charge you money if you use more than two devices, anyhow. Yeah. I, I tell you though, we're talking about some of the you know uh, simple applications and stuff for apps. Um, we we ran a story this week. Uh, Mike uh, wrote for us about uh, the best third party weather apps for your iPhone and your iPad. Just in because of all the weird weather that we have going on right now, we've had about a foot of snow dumped here in Brooklyn today. Um, and I, I did want to make note February. of the, you know that right. Well, yes, but it was 65 degrees here yesterday. It was a record high, followed by yeah, a so blizzard. Yeah, so that's the weird weather, followed by winter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyhow, um, we, we had a good roundup, and I would encourage people to check it out just because, you know, Apple's stock weather app, while well, it gets the job done, uh, you know, there are some more interesting options out there. And I've been using Carrot Weather for a few months now, um, and it's it is the best third-party Apple Watch app you can get, and it also works great on your phone. But one of the things that I really like about it is it does like hyper specific location based stuff Um, and it does it in a low power way. So it actually doesn't drain much of your battery. I've checked because I constantly now have that location icon in the top right, but it'll let you know within like 15 minutes when it's about to rain or whatever. And it's one of those great applications we're talking about uh, knowing your location, knowing contextually where all the kind of stuff that you want. If you enable it, it'll say, hey, rain's going to start in 10 minutes. You get a little tap on your wrist, you know, when you may not be checking the weather, may not be thinking about it, it goes out of its way to alert you and let you know. Um, and, and that's the kind of stuff that is really exciting for me when it comes to technology. How do those notifications compare with the ones from Dark Sky? Um, I haven't paid for Dark Sky, so I, I, I looked into it before I got Carrot. Um, I know some people are turned off by Carrot because part of its gimmick is that it kind of makes jokes and is a little snarky about the weather. But you can actually turn that off in the settings. Um Carrot, I think, is like three or four dollars for the app, um, and then if you pay two fifty a year subscription, um, it oh. gives you the the hyper local Apple Watch, and it checks every thirty minutes for updated weather. And they have a complication that's really great. Um, so even on the small watch face, you can get both weather and, or I'm sorry, temperature and conditions on one small corner complication. Um, right. which makes it a little more efficient. But the alerts that come in are, are really great. You know, it'll just say, hey, you know, in the next 10 minutes, it's going to start raining and it's going to last for about 45 minutes or something like that. And it's based on not your wide area, but more down to like your street level. Yeah, and that feels a lot like Dark Sky for me. It's, this, it's actually the same um, data pool they're pulling from. Oh, okay. So I, I'm going to stick with Dark Sky then because I've already paid for it. Yeah, no, it's it's the same thing. Um, some people were saying that uh, they were getting better results with Carrot, and also the Carrot Apple Watch app is really, really great, which is why I went with it. But if you have Dark Sky, you're getting essentially the same thing. That's good to know. So, yeah, and they've they've done a good job of making that data pool available, and, and they've got an API so that other developers like Carrot can write to it. Um, I, I think... It's it was it was one of those things that really impressed me because I, I know there are certain weather geeks out there, but to see people take that much interest and passion in doing it right and then making it available to others was uh, was really kind of inspiring. Yeah, so both uh, Carrot and Dark Sky are included in our roundup, and you can find it in the show notes. So I'd encourage people to check that out. Yeah, let's move away. I want to talk about TV. So the big news from this week was that a fellow named uh, Timothy D. Twerdall was the head of Amazon's Fire TV team. And he is coming to Cupertino to fill a similar role in uh, the head of the Apple TV department. It's real easy to read into these kind of hires and these kind of things, but one man does not change how Apple works. Uh, One hire does not change how the business operates. Um, Over the years, they've brought in a lot of talented people with a lot of different kinds of experience. But I... I once asked people, some people who worked for Apple, uh, how they go about deciding what happens to a product and what the product development path should take. What, how, how, how do features make it? How do things make it in or out? And, and obviously, they have a plan. They have an idea of what the thing they're making should be. But when it comes to features, it's, it's not a, a management, management instructs unless it comes from someone like Tim Cook or, you know, formerly Steve Jobs. It's, it's that the managers 
do it more democratically, that, that they're okay with being overruled, that it's about letting the best idea win, as opposed to dictating that, that this is our path as product manager. And so, you know, Twerdall is probably going to come in and give direction and take also direction from, you know, folks like Eddie Q and Tim Cook. But um, that the ideas that he's bringing and the, the uh, you know, commitment to this product segment are probably going to have some effect or impact on what we get as a device. Well, I'll give you a personal story with Apple TV to let you know how far it's come, even though we're not fully appreciative of that sometimes. Um, last night, uh, I was trying to watch the uh, season premiere of the new 24, which aired after the Super Bowl. The now, uh, 24 Legacy, right? Correct. And I had it set to record. I was at a Super Bowl party, but of course it didn't record on time because the Super Bowl went into overtime. So I couldn't watch my recorded version on my cable. So I was like, well, I'll just watch it on demand. Tried to watch it on demand last night and kept getting an error from Spectrum, Time Warner, whatever you want to call them, the, the company that rips me off. And, um, we, and it said, Oh, this won't work. We can't play it. Not available right now. Not available right now. And it's like, well, this is insane. So I just said, screw it. Switched over to my Apple TV. Um, it's a bit of a pain because time Warner and spectrum don't play nice with Apple's single sign on, even though the Fox app does kudos to Fox for that. Uh, but the sign on process was relatively simple. Had to go to a website, enter in a code and then log into my time Warner account. And then I was on and I streamed it. The commercials were annoying, but Hey, it was there and it worked as soon as I started, uh, watching it and then paused it and backed out. Um, it asked me if I wanted to sync it with the TV app to remember where I was watching and what I was doing. I said, yes. So, you know, these are all things that uh, between single sign-on and the TV app and all that, they weren't there three or four months ago, and they're all new to the Apple TV. So while it can feel at times like the platform is not progressing as quickly as we would like, it's better, and it's getting better, and I like that. So yeah, I mean, I think that in that example of my experience there, none of the problems came from... Apple, the Apple TV, or Fox, it was really just the holdups from the cable provider. Their lack of uh, the, their lack of support for single sign-on, their lack of uh, capability to keep their on-demand operating properly. Um, but once I switched over and just got the Apple TV up and uh, signed it on the app, the experience was fine. Yeah, and you know, I've been uh, messing around with other ways of doing TV boxes. I've, I've put together a Raspberry Pi with Cody on it. And so I've, I've gotten familiar with what it's like to watch video over that. And I could have watched 24 Legacy over that, but I would have had, just, just as you had these steps for setting up and coordinating with your cable sign-on and things like that, I would have had additional steps as well to pick from. So none of these things are perfectly smooth the first time for sure. Yeah, I think that Apple TV is getting a lot better. TVOS as a platform is getting better. You can see the changes Apple's made. You know, one of the complaints initially was games required support of the uh, Siri remote. Now you can just make a game and have it use a standard controller. Um, and those are the kind of small changes that I think are going to make a, a big a big impact over the long term. I, I would suspect that hopefully we'll get a new Apple TV later this year since it'll have been two years since the last one was released. Uh, you know, the typical graphical bump, that sort of stuff. And maybe, fingers crossed, some Apple uh, streaming TV subscription service. Apple I, does have plans to to double their services business over the next four years. So you have to think that they're planning on launching that in that in that time frame. Yeah, I don't feel like they've really exhausted the capabilities of the current device. I I think that there's still a lot of legs on it. And one oh, of the I, things I think so, too. I, I think they'll continue to sell it. I think it'll just take the lower price point, you know, $100. Right. Yeah. The the thing that I would say is that when it came to gaming, it's still almost impossible to sort the app store for games that are multiplayer. Yes. Whether that's and, and by that I also mean games that are local multiplayer and games that are multiplayer online. And it's impossible to sort by games that allow or require the use of a controller. Yep. And it's impossible to sort very well by cross buy games too. You can see ones that you bought on another device, but if you haven't bought it yet, then you don't really know. Um, like I remember a few years ago, I was, there's nothing in the description for the Sonic the Hedgehog game for iOS. It says it can, it supports controllers, but apparently it supports controllers. And it's like, I had to like Google to find this out. It wasn't even listed on the app store. It's insane that you can't like just find this out before you give them your $6 or whatever. That's exactly the problem. We were having, uh, you know, over Christmas break, the kids and I were hanging out at the house and we have numerous, we have three or four controllers 
and we wanted to do multiplayer gaming, and we could not find with any kind of ease the games we wanted to play. Yeah, that's that's part of the App Store search problem, and it, it feels like one of those things where when they finally fix it, it's going to make it a lot better for everybody, for developers, for users, hopefully more adoption of the apps that support those kind of things are out there, because it's there, uh, it's just, it, it's not all the way yet, but I, I have to give Apple credit um, I think that the Apple TV uh, as a platform right now is in much better shape than it was uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and I think it's going to continue to get better. Now, this hiring from Amazon, I don't think that means we're going to shake anything up or they're going to uh, change their course drastically. Um, I think that ultimately um, they're going to continue with their slow and steady progress. But let's not forget that they have made progress and it is much better now. I Absolutely. I agree. One of the other things we we're going to talk about is the notion that Apple invented a stretchable display. This is a story that we ran, and uh, did, did you read the story? Yes. Do you know much about it? So it looks like Mikey wrote this because Mikey writes about our patents, mm -hmm. and the idea is to be able to build a device with a flexible display. Why is that even important? What, what can you do with a flexible display? Well, I mean, in the shorter term, you know, if, if we're talking uh, – uh, much, much longer term in terms of future technology, obviously something that you could fold up or, you know, like a newspaper that you could fold up and sew in a bag or something would be interesting. But in the shorter term, you know, Apple is even looking at at uh, um, bendable displays right now for the, for the next iPhone because uh, not necessarily in the sense that you bend it, but that it's bent in terms of the uh, production process. So you can then have curved designs and stuff like that. Uh, the screen itself will be fixed once it's in the final product. But as part of the manufacturing process, then you have a curved edge or something along those lines. Uh, that is where uh, flexible displays uh, have their uh, advantages in the immediate term. Uh, thinking longer term, um, you know, as this patent is with Apple, um, they could even have a display that could be uh, stretched or bent in certain ways. I'm not sure how much of a uh, utility is, is there is in stretching a display. Um, certainly interesting, but uh, I think you can imagine, for example, a phone um, that you, if you were to pull it out of your pocket and was a, a small, thin design and then could be unfolded um, into a larger screen would certainly be an interesting concept, and I, and I know that Apple's had patents to that effect as well. This is one of those like very deep, forward-thinking uh, future technology ideas that Apple has in their patents that um, may never see the light of day, but it's certainly interesting to think about. I, I think about a flexible display in that, you know, if you... We, we, we've seen a lot of work focused on haptic and taptic feedback, right? The right. taptic engine. So what if you have a flexible display and now you can cause some of those portions of the screen to raise up or lower down uh, to indicate where you should press on the screen or where a control is or even uh, as a result of we've, that kind of We've input. seen some of these devices. There was a company a few years ago that had a dynamic cover that went over an iPad screen that would give you some sort of a... a textual uh, feedback on your fingertips so you could feel where keys should be as you type, um, which is an interesting concept, and Apple has patents to that effect as well. Um, so yeah, certainly when you have a, a flexible or stretchable display, um, that, that is an interesting application um, where you could have some, you could put textures essentially on the screen um, to give a different kind of feedback and a different kind of feeling. We know that Apple is interested in this between uh, their investment in 3D Touch and now with the upgraded Taptic Engine in the iPhone 7 um, that offers uh, dynamic input as you do things like scroll and stuff in iOS on the new iPhone. So they, they like to blur the lines between um, uh, the, what you can feel and what's tangible and then what is, is a simulated feeling or digital as well. Um, and and so it's not surprising that they would be looking into this technology, whether or not they can find a practical application for it. And lastly, Tim Cook's been going about Europe, and uh, he popped up at the University of Glasgow and spoke about Steve Jobs as his inspiration. So, you know, Cook uh, noted that Apple wasn't an activist company, but that a company they speak up when the company has interests or they're relevant to the company as a whole. Uh, they, they talked about the company speaking out on the immigration issue that came up recently. But Cook's big instruction to the students was not to use money as a motivating factor, that the difference between earning to, to you know, working to earn is very different from that and loving a job, and that the drive for money wears out or that it's never enough, but, but working for something that you love 
uh, never gets old. And he said that uh, that Jobs was a primary influence in his life, and uh, that you know he took he took a risk on him when Cook was only thirty six years old, and Cook helped him uh, and Jobs helped him focus, that uh, helped him really understand that he was on the wrong path in life, and gave him that focus. So it's one of those kinds of things where you know we always love a good Steve Jobs story, and it's it's nice when another one comes out, isn't it? Yeah, and this has been a productive trip, I think, for Tim. He's been all over Europe um, making Germany, appearances. Yeah. France, mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, you know, he's in the U.K. Uh, uh, today as we record this. So, yeah, I, I think it's been a productive uh, trip, and uh, it's good to, for him to be the face of Apple and to be out there and uh, to be visible, and I think it helps with their brand. And, and uh, I think that when you can put a human face on a company and somebody – who is clearly passionate um, and intelligent and advocates for cause that they believe in. Um, I think that overall that's good for business. I think that that, that breeds uh, attachment to the products in a way that uh, it is difficult for other companies to replicate. Uh, certainly there will never be another Steve Jobs, but uh, it was Steve's passion and, and uh, not just his vision, but his personal uh uh, passion and, and the causes that he was an advocate for that uh, played a big part in why uh, he was such a larger than life character that that people still to this day revere. Um, and it's it's good to see that you know Tim Cook has taken on causes that are important to him. And I think that ultimately in the long term that's going to be reflect well on Apple's business. Um, obviously, there's more to it than business, but um, if you're looking at it from that perspective, I think that that breeds a loyalty to the company and to their products uh, that go well beyond just making a good phone. I agree. So, this brings us to the close of the Apple Insider podcast. Oh, you know, no, it doesn't, because you know what? There's one more thing that I want to talk about. You told us at the very beginning of this that you were in Lake Tahoe. You told I us was, you, went, yeah. you went out there. So, so, you know, are there any home movies from this? Can I watch anything? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm actually working on a review um, of the new GoPro Hero 5 uh, with the Karma Grip that they sell as an accessory. Not not to be confused with the Karma Drone, uh, this is actually a stabilizer with battery um, that gives you some super smooth footage. So I was excited to go out there and test because this is my first time um, skiing since owning an Apple Watch. Um, so I had like a ski mountain specific face on there with all controls on there. So I used an app called Slopes that lets you know how far you go, how much time you spend on the lifts, uh, how fast you're going, all kinds of neat stuff. Um, and then you can actually get GoPro controls on your uh, Apple Watch as well. So I tested out um, all of it with the new GoPro Hero 5 and the Karma Grip and really came away super impressed with the results. Um, you know, I've owned GoPros for years, and uh, as longtime listeners of podcasts will know, I have a kind of love-hate relationship with the company because they, they make great products, but they really don't have much in the way of vision or, or foresight uh, in many ways. Um, but the the quality of footage of the combination of the Karma Grip and the Hero 5 is really uh, quite uh, impressive. Um, the stabilized footage uh, looks really fantastic. I showed you earlier, Victor, uh, a clip of some of the stuff that I had filmed while I was out there um, as I was working on the review. And uh, it just looks, it's night and day, the professional look that it has with that stabilized footage. Uh, it's not perfect. You know, they did uh, make it very simple. So you can't like there's no physical control for panning on there or anything like that. Uh, but again, if you're going down a mountain at 40 or 50 miles an hour, uh, you don't really want to be messing around with that. Anyhow, you kind of want to just hold it and shoot, which is GoPro's philosophy, which is why all their stuff has a fisheye and all that as well. Um and, you know, I've, like I said, I've used this stuff in the past and you mount it on your chest or on your pole or whatever, and it gets, you know, this shaky footage and you can do things to stabilize it, but it's not the same as having an actual stabilizer on there. But true to GoPro's form and their outright stupidity, um, the, uh, the Karma Grip uh, requires, it's got a handle on it that is uh, also the battery and it's a big, heavy, bulky thing. So the Karma Grip comes with a mounting thing so that you can mount it on a helmet or mount it on your chest or on your pole or whatever you want. But currently, you have to do that with this giant, heavy battery, which makes it pretty useless to mount on your head. I mean, nobody would want to do that. I did mount it as a chest mount, but again, it was like this big, weird thing in the middle of my chest. 
GoPro has announced when they announced the product that they're going to have this like extension cable so you can take the battery and shove it in a backpack or in a pocket or whatever and just have the 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 gimbal mounted, but they haven't shipped it yet. And it's just a $20 cable with USB-C connectors on each end. I looked into it to see if I could just use a regular USB-C cable. Well, of course not. It's a proprietary cable inside. It's just the USB-C connectors on the outside. And it's like, Wonderful. this is this is the stupidity of GoPro. They have a great product. The stabilizer works really well. If you want to get more utility out of it and not have this giant handle, you'd want to stow it somewhere. You need this cable, a $20 cable, which should just be available alongside it. should be easy to manufacture. It shouldn't be a big deal. The Hero 5 and Karma Grip have been out since like last October. Cable is still not available. Can't buy it. I don't know why this company does things the way that they do because this is a really great product that produces fantastic footage and yet something so simple isn't available. I, I don't understand why they do this. cable supposed to go on sale? They say this spring. No, originally. It was originally probably supposed to come out with the rest of it, but they probably fell into so, a trap because their because their drone fell out of the sky. So so they had to recall it, and they're scrambling, and they're busy firing people, and and their CEOs on the hot seat, and it's just like, man, you know, I I want to. I want to endorse this company. I like their products. I like a lot of what they do, but they're just so clueless sometimes. This is fine. Everything is totally fine. Their company's on fire around them. It's totally fine. And they made a great product. You know, I'm, I'm out there with some friends that are like really good snowboarders. They live out in Colorado. They take it all seriously. And they were blown away by the footage. They're saying, oh, man, I want to get one of these. They were so excited about it. Everybody is really impressed by this product, but they it's just like little things that they can't get right. And it's like, why can't you get the little things right? That, that's It's so important to get the little things right, and they just can't do it. Mm-hmm. But the I, iPhone connectivity was great. So, you know, you stop, um, have lunch, whatever, connect my iPhone to the GoPro directly. It uses Bluetooth and Wi-Fi for quick pairing, quick data transfer, all that kind of stuff. Um, you can stream the video and of course it downscales it so you can stream it quickly to your phone. But then there has a feature where you can tap and say, I want a screenshot of this moment. And so what it does is it stops and gets the high resolution screenshot, transfers it to your phone. You can post it on Twitter, Facebook, whatever you want. I mean, their their integration with iOS is really impressive. They did a great job with it. It's just a shame that they can't get the little things right. That is, that is a shame. Well, parting thought, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners before we wrap up this episode? Um, well, I'll have a review of the GoPro coming up in the next few weeks. I've got some products here that uh, I need to knock out some reviews on, including a portable Apple Watch uh, battery and charger. That's a pretty neat product. Um, and some headphones that, that I'm going to be reviewing. Um, and we've got the new Beats X coming out on Friday. So keep your eyes peeled for that review as well. Um, and yeah, as we keep going forward uh, and into March, where we're expecting some new iPads. Uh, keep it locked to Apple Insider. Excellent. Well, Neil, where can people find you on the internet? You can read all of my musings at Apple Insider, and you can follow me on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and you'll see more of me here at Apple Insider. And this is episode 107. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all back here next week.